right, well, we are in our fourth week of our Rooted experience, and uh, this has been a tremendous time thus far. Uh, challenging, yes, but tremendous nonetheless. Uh, so this is my fourth time doing Rooted, and I'm still learning valuable things, not only about myself, but more importantly about God, my connection, my relationship with Him, as well as my relationship with others in the church, and then understanding my purpose, uh, God's purpose for me. And, and I, my prayer is that, that you as, as well are experiencing that too. So I've been hearing not only from uh, people in my group, but also um, other groups and and facilitators, that things are going fantastic, and that uh, uh, there have been some great discussions. So I look forward to what God continues to do in the midst of these group experiences and as we process through Rooted together. It's a 10-week deal, so we're finishing it up here in the middle of November. We're going to have a celebration and celebrating what God's done. Be thinking about being baptized and if you have questions about baptism, I would love to have a conversation with you about that. Baptism is this outward expression of what God has done inwardly. So if God has changed your heart, that has come because you have decided to follow Jesus and make him the leader of your life, then we're commanded to get baptized. And by being baptized, we're saying, yes, I've decided. I've decided to follow Jesus, and I want everybody else to know that. It's a tremendous expression and a really great time of celebration. If you're interested in being baptized, we're going to have that opportunity opportunity on the 15th at Sunday night deal. Anyways, we're in our fourth week and we're tackling a difficult question. Where is God in the midst of suffering? Where is God in the midst of suffering? Holy cow. That's a tough one, isn't it? And, and if, if we could be honest with one another, I would venture to say that at least inwardly, you know, maybe not necessarily uh, verbally, maybe this isn't something that you've said out loud or that you've uh, uh, told other people or maybe not even put it on Facebook, right? But you've thought it. You've wondered it. Haven't you? God, where are you? Where is God in the midst of suffering? Had a conversation with a young gal uh, not too long ago, and she was in tears when she was thinking about all that was going on in the world and the overwhelming nature of it and just feeling like, like things are out of control and, 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 and being unsafe, feeling unsafe in the midst of all of that and, and wondering, where is God in the midst of all this? Now, it's, it's one thing to ask that question, where is God in the midst of suffering? But let's not ask that to one another. Because when we ask it to one another, we can't ask that question without wrestling whether God exists. And that's not what today is. Today isn't, isn't whether God exists or not. Now, I will say that, that this question, uh, the suffering that exists in the world, evil in the world, is a legitimate issue with people that struggle with whether God exists or not. In that, if you say that God exists and you say that he's a good God, then how could a good God, a benevolent, a benevolent creator, then allow all these things to happen? And because all these things are happening, I choose not to believe that there's a God. Now that's real. And I, I've talked to many people who have had those questions and struggled with those things. But instead, what we're going to do is, because that's for another time, that's for another day, and I do believe it's an important question, it's an important topic and discussion to be had, but today what we're going to do is we're going to assume the existence of God. 
And actually, when we ask the question, where is God in the midst of suffering, you are assuming God's existence and asking that question, are you not? Really, you're not, you're not, the question isn't where is God in the midst of suffering, but you're asking, okay, there's a God, well, why does it seem like he doesn't care? Isn't that really the question? God, why don't you care? Or why aren't you involved? So the question isn't about existence, it's his existence, but whether or not he cares. And so really, it's not good for us to ask this question to one another because there's limitations as to, as to how it is that we can even engage in that conversation. And we would just go round and round with one another. I mean, this has been a philosophical discussion, an epistemological discussion that has existed for, for centuries, thousands of years. And if you and I engage in this conversation, we might have some sort of semblance or some sort of clarity, but we're never going to fully understand because we're limited, right? We are fallible. We're human beings, and we have an end to our capability. Why not just ask God then? So instead of asking one another, where is God in the midst of suffering? Why not just ask the question, God, where are you? God, where are you? in the midst of all this suffering. <laughs> that seems like a dangerous question, maybe. Do you feel comfortable asking God that question? Could I have somebody close that door in the back? Would someone be willing to do that for me? That'd be great. Thank you. That sounds like a dangerous question, doesn't it? Would, would you feel comfortable asking God the question, God, where are you in the midst of of all this suffering. Maybe it's personal, maybe it's individualized suffering. Suffering that you're experiencing yourself, either physically, mentally, emotionally. Or maybe you're, you're referring to the suffering uh, that exists in the world or our nation. Or maybe it's suffering that, that someone close to you is experiencing, but do you feel comfortable asking that question, God, where are you in the midst of all this suffering? It's hard, it's hard to ask tough questions to individuals, it's uh, often better, easier to ask rhetorical questions, just as it is often very uncomfortable for any of you if I lock eyes with you. And you're like, oh, my goodness, the pastor's looking at me. Yeah, I'm paying attention. I'm listening. That's ah, challenging. God, where are you in the midst of suffering? Do you think God likes that kind of question? Do you think that you're a bad person if you ask God something like that? Do you think that you are less of a Christian? Are you showing your, your cards in a negative way by asking God, where are you? I would argue that you are not. Take the transfiguration as an example. The transfiguration, for those of you who may not know, is this moment in Jesus' ministry. We see it in the New Testament. Without getting into a whole lot of detail, basically, he, he goes to a place where God encourages him. See, Jesus is God incarnate. So he's the Son of God, but yet he's 100% human. Not only 100% God, but 100% human. And so he's dealing with all the stuff that you and I deal with. And imagine trying to convince all these people of something that many of them reject and how discouraging that would be, right? God knew this, and so he, 
he brings to him two people that have long been dead that are now in the presence of God. He brings them to Jesus to interact and to encourage Jesus. Do you know who he sends? Who does he send? Elijah and Moses. Elijah and Moses both struggled. These are, these, are the, these are the people that God specifically chosen to encourage his son, the son of the living God, when he needed it the most. And he sends these two dudes, right? Elijah and Moses. And both Elijah and Moses asked these questions to God. As a matter of fact, when, 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 when God said to Moses, hey, I'm going to send you to Egypt to free my people, Moses replied, here I am, but send somebody else. I would argue that there is sufficient evidence in all of Scripture that, <laughs> that God actually wants us to ask these tough questions to him. Let me ask you, have you been in a conversation with somebody where, you know, it's, it's been just like any other conversation, uh, maybe a little bit challenging, maybe not. Maybe it's been just kind of carefree. And then you find out a week or a month or a year or five years later that something you said actually hurt that person or made them upset. Have you ever had a conversation like that? Wouldn't you want to know from that person Sooner rather than later, hey, I heard this and it made me feel this way or I heard this and it makes me think that you think this of me and that's not at all what you meant to say. That's not at all what you were feeling or what you wanted to come across. Wouldn't you want to know that so that you can correct that, so you can give the right information? Well, because we're fickle, because we're incapable of fully understanding God, he wants us to ask these questions because God wants to clarify himself to you and I. He wants to clarify and he wants to make himself known to you and to me. Many people, if we look at the Hall of Fame, if, we were, if there was a literal Hall of Fame of those people that served God like there is with the College Football Hall of Fame and, 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 and Canton, Ohio with the NFL, if there was a Christianity Hall of Fame, all the people that you would see in that hall have asked these questions. So why not just ask God? Let's ask God. God, where are you in the midst of all this suffering? Where are you, God? What's really cool is not only has this question been asked, but it's also been answered by God himself, specifically in the person of Habakkuk. Now there's a great, a great debate that's raged for centuries. Is it Habakkuk or Habakkuk? Well, we're going to go with Habakkuk today, all right? But Habakkuk. It says, Minor Prophet is really only three chapters, three chapters long. So if you want to be able to tell your friends and family that you read, a, I read a whole book in the Bible today. That'd be the one right there. But in this, in this book, Habakkuk is, he is, he is prophesying, He's, he is seeing what is, what is coming down the pike for the Israelites. Not only is he seeing the, what would eventually become the inevitable, inevitable invasion and then conquering of 
Israel and Jerusalem by the Babylonians, the captivity that they would incur, but also the destruction of Jerusalem that would soon follow. So all this, Habakkuk is, is, he's knowing and he's prophesying. But not only that, but his present circumstances are such where things are very dire, that for not only him, but for all the Israelites, I mean, world, the world and their life is, is really, really difficult. And so he's asking that question very similar to what I think many of us are asking is, God, where are you? As a matter of fact, he, he literally asked that question. Right off the bat, in verse 1 of chapter 1, Habakkuk asks God, where are you in the midst of my suffering, in the midst of our suffering? This is specifically what he says. And these verses, they're not going to be on the screen. Typically, we would do that. They're not going to be on the screen for you watching via the live stream because I want you to listen today. It's a little different. I want you to listen. We're going to do some talking Bible action. Okay? All right. Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is what Habakkuk says to God, asks God. He says, how long, Lord, how long must I call for help? But you do not listen. Or cry out to you violence. But you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked, they hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Habakkuk here is essentially asking God this question that we should feel free to ask ourselves, God, where are you? So our our vision becomes clouded because we would see God, if this whiteboard, this white whiteboard, if this would represent God in some way, our perception of who God is and where he is becomes clouded by these, these things that we, that we see presented in front of us that become so cumbersome and so overwhelming. Things that Habakkuk here points out in these verses. Let's listen to these again. How long, Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen or cry out to you. Violence. The violence that we either experience or that we see done. But you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Injustice that runs supreme throughout this nation and the world. Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction. And violence are before me. There is strife. Strong words. And conflict. 
may abound. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. And the wicked hem in the righteous. So then our eyes are drawn, understandably, to all this mess. We see that. That's in front of us. And it clouds our ability to see God. And it then leads us to focus narrowly on this and ask then, God, why aren't you addressing this? Where are you in the midst of this? This, that's what Habakkuk here is asking. And as I mentioned, though, this question is not only uh, proposed, but that it's answered. God answers it. That's why the Bible is so cool, by the way. It actually has answers. And I know I say that a little bit facetiously, but we forget that, don't we? And this is God's, he gives two answers. And the first is this. You could never fully understand. That's a hard one. You could never fully understand. This is specifically what God says in response to Habakkuk's questions. In verse 5, he says, Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. See, in light of this ageless question, the question that has existed for thousands of years, why do people suffer? We first have to ascertain, we have to come to grips with the fact that we are incapable of understanding things the way that God does. We talked about this a couple weeks ago when we asked, who is God? Well, God is transcendent. He is so other. That's what makes it so cool that God, even though he's so transcendent and so other and almighty and holy, that he still came to us. That he didn't just sit on his throne and allow us to squander and to die and to perish in the dirt. He came and redeemed us when we couldn't come to him. That's what makes it so cool. Let's not forget the fact that that's who he is. That's God. There is a God and we're not him. And I'm thankful for that. I know a lot of fantastic people. There are, there are some people in, in my circle, in my life, that I would, I would love to emulate. I look at them and I'm like, I want to be just like that. But even those people, I would not want in charge of the whole thing. Because I know that each of us have limitations, right? And so the fact that there's a God who's holy, that he's transcendent, that he's other, that I can't put into a box actually gives me hope. The fact that I can't figure him out completely actually fills me with hope. Because that means that there's a God who's way more capable than I'll ever be to sustain all of this. But that's not, that's not enough. I totally get it. And it wasn't enough for Habakkuk. 
to ask the question, God, where are you in the midst of all the suffering? And, and for God to simply say, uh, well, you can never fully understand and then say, I'm out. That's, that's not enough. So Habakkuk, he goes in again. And we should feel free to go in again. In verse 13 of chapter 1, Habakkuk says this. He says, okay, I get that. I get that you are your other. You're transcendent. I can't fully understand. I get that. But then he says, but your eyes are too pure to look at evil. You can't tolerate wrongdoing. Like, God, you don't like that stuff. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? That's a legitimate question. God, if you're so against this, then why, why do you allow this? And God's answer is really simple. It's, it's essentially two words. I am. I am. Not the letter M, but A-M. I am. Specifically, in verses 18 through 20 of chapter 1, this is what God says. He says, Of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman or an image that teaches lies? For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to a lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. And then he finishes this by saying, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. The first time that God says, I am, is when he's talking to Moses. Remember, we talked about that. So when God says, hey, I want you to go to Egypt, and I want you to tell Pharaoh, hey, let, let my people, let God's people go. And, and if Pharaoh asks, well, who sent you? I want you to tell them, this is what God says, I want you to tell them, I am has sent me. I am. Now, this, 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 these words, this phrase translated from that ancient Hebrew is basically this. I will be what I will be. I will be what I will be. That means that God is all-encompassing, that he is completely self-sufficient, that he is totally and utterly in control, and that he sees you and he sees me always. We are not hidden from him. We are not oblivious, or he is not rather oblivious to us. So then Habakkuk responds to this second answer about God, where are you? It says this in verses 17 through 19 of chapter 3, Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior 
The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. The question shouldn't be, where is God in the midst of suffering? Or where are you, God, in the midst of suffering? Rather, the question should be, why aren't we aware of all the times that God has intervened when we have suffered? See, God has always been present. He's always been present. Nothing can separate us from God. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 through 39, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We look at this in our narrow focus fixates on this mess and we ask God naturally understandably where are you in the midst of this and we fail to realize that God's never gone anywhere just like this board it hasn't hasn't left just our perception of it has been clouded so instead what God is saying he says Don't fixate on this question, where am I, because I'm here. Instead, ask, why is it that you and I aren't aware of all the times that God has intervened in our lives and in this world, countless times in which he's injected himself into the lives of the people that call this place. And when we start focusing on that, we start understanding or seeing all this stuff begin to dissipate and our perception is not on the mess it's not on the violence the injustice the wickedness on the wrongdoing but instead it's fixated on god the sustainer of all things ever present In the times that we have rejoiced in God's blessings and involvement in our lives, he has been just as present and as loving as in the times when he seemed to be distant. And the most perfect and beautiful example of God's redemptive intervention is that he came to us. He came to us. And so we're going to remember that sacrifice. The redemptive sacrifice that Christ became for us on the cross. I'm going to ask you to grab your communion cups and I'm going to um, you know, go ahead and begin opening that up. It's a bit of a process. Uh, hopefully you took your college course on how you can open these, these cups up. But there's the wafer at the top and then you got the, the juice inside. What we tend to forget or not remember is that at the time that Jesus was with his disciples and did this for the very first time, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus was full aware of what was to come. The history books, maybe movie depictions, would seem to indicate that that Jesus was surprised or that he was overcome, that maybe he would have had a different plan had not the people captured him and tortured him and put him to death. But 
The plan was sound. Jesus didn't come to overthrow a government. He didn't come to say some really good words that would be put in a book for years to come that we could read and remember him by. Jesus lived so that he could die. That was it. That was the plan. Imagine yourself in that moment. If I could be so bold as to ask you to imagine that you're God. But imagine that you're Jesus in that moment. And we can because He was human as well as divine. And the knowledge of what it is that He was going to experience, not only the pain, the persecution, the torment, but then separation from His Father, to take on the weight of all sin, he knew that that was his destination. And here he is with his disciples in the upper room, and things have been going relatively well up to that point. And the disciples, they're kind of excited about this Jesus guy. He's the Messiah, he's the one that's been promised all throughout the Old Testament, which was the Bible for them at that time. But their, their thought, their belief was that Jesus was going to sit on an earthly throne. That he was going to finally bring redemption to the nation of Israel. They had no idea, no idea what was about to come. That's why they were just blown away by Jesus having been taken captive and then persecuted and then, and then killed on the cross. That was not the plan. So that's the environment that we find ourselves in in that upper room when Jesus is with his disciples. And he says these words, Jesus aware and his disciples not. Imagine the grief, the sadness, that Jesus must have been experiencing in that moment to know that he was completely alone. But yet that didn't deter him, did it? Later on he would be in the garden and he'd be on his hands and knees asking his father for another way and his father reminding him, no, this is it. This is, this is it. And what does Jesus say? How does he respond? He says, not my will, but your will be done. Your will be done. Make something really clear. Jesus stayed on that cross. Yes, he loved you and me. He loves you and me, but love didn't keep him on that cross. Nails didn't keep him on that cross. It was his obedience to the Father that kept him on that cross. Obedience to the plan. So on that moment, Jesus took the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he said, this here, this is my blood shed for you, poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
even though there is so much confusion and uncertainty and suffering, that should not preclude us from living with joy. Because we have a hope, a hope that is solid, firm, will not fade, will not diminish. I love all of you. I'm so thankful for the opportunity that we've had to be together here today. I pray that each of you have not only a fantastic day, but that God reveals himself to you in amazing ways this week. Don't forget that as you leave, as God leads, you can give towards the benevolence offering. For those of you watching live stream, thank you for joining us. You can give also through the app or through the website. God bless.